I'm so thankful they were able to sing that for us. And I'm thankful for the privilege and the opportunity to stand before you this morning and open God's word with you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 20. We are nearing the end of our series through John, which we've entitled Conversations with Jesus. If you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you've been here only for a few Sundays and you're jumping in at the end of this series, what we've been doing has been working our way through this text, specifically looking at conversations that Jesus has with individuals. And what we've seen as we've worked through each of these conversations is that as Jesus meets these people and as Jesus speaks to these people, Jesus speaks to us. And John's writing this gospel many years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And he's writing with this specific purpose in mind, that he could show us Jesus, that we would see Jesus, not physically with our eyes, but spiritually in the word. Jesus is the word, and so that we would believe and have life in his name. Jesus is God incarnate. He's God revealed. John tells us early on in his text that Jesus is the clearest and fullest revelation of Jesus. So if we want to know God, we need to look to Jesus. And if we want to know Jesus, we need to look to him in the word. And so each week we've been going to the word, looking to Jesus, seeing how he interacts with sinners, hearing his words, and seeing how Jesus speaks to us. And today what we're going to look at is a conversation Jesus had with his disciples, and specifically he's dealing with their doubt. Have you ever doubted God before? Do you struggle with doubt, I know myself as I uh, reflect on my life and my walk with the Lord has been marked by doubt. I've doubted uh, from anything from doubting God's sovereignty, his control, his plan for my life when it doesn't go with how I expect it to, all the way to God's promises, his, his uh, works, and his Uh, promises of grace that he tells us in scripture? Is God really in control of life? Is it really worth it? Has God really spoken and is it really true for our life and applicable for our life today? Is Jesus's grace really enough for me? Sometimes our our, our doubts can be hard to articulate because we're complex beings. So our feelings, our emotions, our circumstances, they all intertwine with how we think. And sometimes bringing those into a place where we can actually understand what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, what we're doubting is hard to communicate. Other times it's pretty clear to us. There's circumstances that arise and doubts arise in our hearts and we're like, God, are are you good? Are you kind? Do you even care? Do you even know what's going on in my life? 
right? And if we're honest with ourselves, we all doubt. Can I offer some good news for us this morning? Jesus speaks to our doubt. We're going to see in the text this morning how Jesus deals with our doubt and what he says to us in our doubt. So look at the text with me this morning in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with there when Jesus came. All right? So what is John referencing here? He's, he's connecting this story about Thomas to the preceding verses in verses 19 through 23 when Jesus appeared to the disciples. Right? Matt talked about this briefly last week as he unfolded for us how the resurrection transforms our emotions and, and gives us hope. It makes us optimistic people. But our text this morning is inextricably linked to these preceding verses. So we need to take a look briefly at these verses. So look with me at verse 19. It says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is the day that Jesus arose. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold the sins of any, or forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what's going on in this passage that's underlying what we're going to see in Jesus' conversation with Thomas? Well, these disciples were locked in a room. Jesus, their master and teacher, who they had followed around for three years, had just been brutally executed by the religious leaders of the day. Jesus and his disciples, in, in Jesus' uh, plan, in God's plan in providence, it was Jesus' time. John makes a big uh, deal about this time when Jesus knew it was his time to go and be the sacrifice of the world. And so they head to Jerusalem at the Passover feast where all faithful Jews would come to celebrate for a week and remember what God had done for them in Egypt. If you're familiar with the scriptures at all, Israel was the nation formed by God, and early on in their history, they went into bondage in Egypt for 400 plus years. And while they, there, they were there, they were, they were suffered, they were mistreated, they were slaves, and in God's perfect timing, he sent Moses and through his servant Moses, he sent plagues onto Egypt in order to redeem Israel, to show the nations around them, this is my special people. And after he did that, he established the Passover feast 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sometimes it's called, as a remembrance for Israel to always look back at what God had done for them, his faithfulness. And so that's the feast that's going on. This feast signified the sacrificial lamb that was going, the blood of the lamb was going on the door in which God would pass over and spare those people. And Israel in the time of Egypt had no idea what that sacrifice would point to. And the Israelites in Jerusalem at this moment had no idea that the sacrifices they were remembering were being fulfilled in that time. The true sacrificial lamb was about to be slaughtered at the time of Passover when Christ would pass over and take our sins and bear them on himself on the cross so that we could be made right with God. The Jews are here celebrating this feast. They know about Jesus. They're excited about Jesus. They've heard about him. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard his teaching is full of authority. And when Jesus comes in, John tells us the people treated Jesus like a king. They sang his praises. They bowed down. But there was a group of people who didn't like Jesus. Right? The religious leaders of the day, they were seething with anger when Jesus came in because Jesus was the antithesis to them. He was a teacher who had authority, who taught truth, who freed people. They were people who put burdens on people, who wanted people to look at them and make much of them. And so Jesus, when he came, they were so angry. Why? would people follow Jesus? So they put forth this plan that ended with Jesus being crucified five days later on the day of Passover. And the crowds are unmoved. They they don't know the significance of what happened. The religious leaders are appeased, but they're paranoid because they know there was something special about Jesus. And the disciples are distraught. Their teacher is dead. Their hopes are dashed. And their hearts are full of dread. And so what do they do? They lock themselves in a room, the scripture tells us. Because they're afraid of the religious leaders of the day. They're afraid that the teachings that got Jesus killed... And the teachings that they followed Jesus around for three years, they're next. So they're hiding in this room. Can you imagine the kind of confusion, the kind of doubt and despair that these disciples were feeling? Right? I I imagine they asked questions like this. What just happened? Was anything that Jesus said true? Was all of it a lie? I gave my life for this man. I mean, I gave up my job. I gave up my family. I gave up my future. And now he's dead? He was supposed to be the Messiah, the one that God sent to redeem Israel. Have I been duped? 
Am I next? And as they're pondering and processing these questions, something miraculous happens. Jesus appears to them. And John takes special care for us to know that the door was locked. So when Jesus appeared, he appeared supernaturally and miraculously. He didn't come by opening the door. He came through the door. The disciples are in shock. Not only has all this happened, and they're stunned and trying to figure out, now they think they're seeing a ghost. I mean, the text tells us that in Luke chapter 24, which recounts this same period, it says this, as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said, peace to you. But the disciples were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. These disciples were afraid. Jesus addresses them, peace to you. And then he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Our text this morning has infamously been termed Doubting Thomas. You've probably heard that if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time. But as we think through this whole event, we could fairly label the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, the doubting disciples. Because they're sitting in a room, not remembering what Jesus had said, afraid that they're next. And Jesus comes for two reasons. He comes to calm them, and he comes to commission them. Right? He says, peace I give to you. He calms them. But then Jesus says, peace I give to you again. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus is commissioning his disciples. And then he says these these really weird phrases that if you're like me, you just want to skip over. Not deal with because it doesn't make sense. It brings a lot of questions, right? Jesus says this, after he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If any, uh, if you forgive sins of any, they're forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. What is Jesus saying? What does he mean, receive the Holy Spirit? That doesn't happen until Acts. So how do we deal with that? Is the scripture contradicting itself here? And how can Jesus give the disciples the authority to forgive sins? I thought that was only God's authority. And when we ask that question, it actually brings clarity to us. What Jesus is doing here, he's commissioning his disciples. He's saying, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He's sending them out to continue his work with his authority. And the way that he's going to do this is by breathing the Holy Spirit on them. He's looking forward to the Spirit that he's promised that's going to empower them. Right? We're used to hearing this commission from Matthew 28. But it's clear if we read the Gospels, this was Jesus' message from the time he resurrected until the time he ascended. He said multiple times to his disciples, I'm commissioning you to gospel ministry. You have my authority to go 
and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that I've been announcing. And I'm gonna give you my seal, my stamp of approval, my spirit. He's gonna come and live inside you. And you're gonna tell people about me. So what does this text have to do with our text, with the story of, of Thomas? So look back at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, right? Thomas wasn't there. Where was Thomas? Well, we could speculate on that all day, what Thomas was thinking, what he was feeling, but the truth of the matter is that the text doesn't tell us. The one thing the text tells us that we can be certain of is that Thomas wasn't there. And we can know this, Jesus doesn't do anything by chance. So when Jesus appeared to the disciples the first time and Thomas wasn't there, it wasn't by accident, right? John tells us multiple times throughout his gospel as he's pointing us to Jesus that Jesus was guided by the divine messianic mission. He had a purpose and it was to follow his father and do the works of the father that the father had given him. Everything Jesus did was intentional, right? John chapter four, Jesus didn't pass through Samaria by chance. There was a person there, a relatively insignificant person, a wholly sinful person. And the text tells us Jesus had to go there. And we know that's not the case because plenty of other Jews didn't go through Samaria to get to Galilee, but Jesus had a person to go minister to. He didn't do anything by chance. So when Jesus showed up to the 10 disciples, he wasn't caught off guard. Like, where's Thomas? Thomas was supposed to be here. You guys let Thomas go? Like, you know, he was supposed to be here. Don't, don't mess this up when I come back in a week, okay? Thomas needs to be here for this. No, Jesus knew what he was doing. And so he shows himself to the disciples. He reveals himself to them. And the apostles who have seen the risen Jesus now go and do what we see them doing for the rest of church history. They go around and they start saying, we've seen the risen Lord. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples go to Thomas and they say, we've seen the Lord. They're like, Thomas, 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 you won't believe it. Jesus is back. Now imagine Thomas, right? He just watched Jesus die. He saw Jesus brutally executed. He saw Jesus taken down from the cross, his lifeless body carried to the tomb. He knew Jesus was dead. And now these disciples are running in ecstatic, telling him Jesus is alive. Can you imagine what his response was? No way. You guys are crazy. Okay, did you guys eat some bad lamb last night? Like, this, this is impossible. It's not funny. 
Thomas is getting frustrated as the disciples continue to press him. They're like, Thomas, we're for real. Like, we saw Jesus with our own eyes. We touched Jesus. He ate fish in front of us. And Thomas, after going back and forth, thinking his buddies have snapped, he looks at them and he says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, And unless I touch the nail marks or I put my hand in his side, I will never believe. This isn't just a casual brushing off like, that's crazy, I don't believe that. It's not a quick remark. It's a strong statement. In the Greek Thomas uses a double negative. We lose this in our English translation. It's like Thomas says this, I will never, ever believe unless Jesus meets these conditions. Something happened that caused Thomas to doubt. Right? The situation with Jesus, it didn't go how... Thomas expected, right? Thomas thought Jesus was the Messiah. He loved Jesus. He had high expectations because he knew what the Messiah was supposed to do. And then it didn't go how he thought. And doubts creeped in to Thomas's heart and his mind. And he started to question, was Jesus really who he said he was? Isn't that how doubt creeps into your mind and my mind? Situations happen in our life, circumstances arise that we're not expecting or that we can't plan for or life doesn't turn out the way we want it to or we think it should or God doesn't meet the expectations that we set for him and doubt starts to creep in our mind. Before we cast judgment on Thomas for his unbelief, which can be a temptation for us, right? Because we know the full story. So we're like, Thomas, how could you not get it? Like Jesus literally told you this multiple times before he died, that this was going to happen. Your closest friends, your brothers who you've lived with and walked with and done amazing things with, and seen amazing things with, are telling you, Jesus is back. He appeared to us. It's not just somebody else's testimony. It's his testimony. Like, we've been with the Lord, and the Lord's commissioned us to go and tell you. How can you not believe, Thomas? And those thoughts come in our mind as we're reading this, like, how did he not get it? And we don't like to look too closely at Thomas because we're afraid that when we look at Thomas, we're going to see our own reflection. Because the reality is, you and I struggle with doubt and unbelief like Thomas. We may not say it the way Thomas does or articulate it that way. Our doubt may not be the same as Thomas's. But we doubt God. No doubt there's probably someone here 
this morning wrestling with doubt and unbelief about the existence of God or the truthfulness of scripture or the trustworthiness of Jesus. There may be some here who are doubting the things they've heard their whole life, that their families have taught them, that their church has taught them. I don't think Thomas is doubt in this text was about the reliability of scripture or the existence of God. But I do think this text points us to this truth, that God speaks to our doubts. And while that may not be all of our doubts, many of us do doubt God in a a myriad of ways. Our lives are filled with, with doubt, whether or not we ever voice them or articulate them or even realize that we are doubting God, our lives are marked by doubt. We doubt God's power and his sovereign control and plan for our life, right? So we have thoughts of how life should go or what it should be like or what God should do for us, and then it doesn't happen, and we start to think, God, are you really in control? Or maybe our doubts aren't on God's power and sovereignty, but they're they're on his goodness, right? We know God's in control. We know he has a plan, but things are happening that we can't reconcile in our mind how God could do that or allow that and still be good, right? How could God do this to my family? How could God allow my parent to suffer that way? How could God allow my children to walk that way? How could God do whatever? You put your doubt in the blank and still be good or still be in control or still care about me. We doubt God's goodness, his power, his care, his trustworthiness, right? God, I've been in this season for as long as I can remember, and it seems like you haven't heard me or you haven't done anything. God, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. We doubt God's promises. We doubt his grace. Where are you doubting this morning? I'm having to ask myself that question. Can I submit to you this morning that God gives us this text purposefully because he speaks to us today telling us that Jesus deals with those who doubt and he tells us how Jesus deals with our doubt. So go back to the text with me this morning in verse 26. It says this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again And Thomas was with them. So Thomas is there this time. And although the doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus answered him and said, have you believed because you've seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So there's four truths we need to see from these verses about how Jesus deals with those who doubt. Truth number one, Jesus knows our doubts. As I said earlier, Jesus doesn't do anything by chance. He doesn't make mistakes. He's never caught off guard. So when he showed up the first time, it wasn't like he didn't know Thomas wouldn't be there. He knew that a week later, he would appear again when Thomas was there so that he could address Thomas. The text indicates he came specifically to talk to Thomas, right? Jesus knew Thomas was doubting. Look at verse 27 again. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Jesus knew not only that Thomas was doubting, but Jesus knew exactly what Thomas's doubts were. Unless Jesus comes to me and shows me these truths and gives me meets the conditions I've laid out for him, I will never believe. And what does Jesus do? He shows up and he addresses Thomas's exact doubts. He says, touch my marks on my hand. Place your fingers in my wound, okay? Jesus wasn't playing Pictionary with the other disciples behind Thomas. They weren't like, Jesus, he needs to see the, the marks Come on, he's, he's not going to believe. Like nobody told Jesus that was Thomas's doubts. Jesus knew. He came to Thomas in his doubts. He addressed Thomas's doubts. So you know what that means for you and for me? Jesus knows your doubt. Jesus knows my doubt. He knows our doubts. He's not aloof to them. He's not unaware. He's not fooled by the way we present ourselves to other people and by the way we try to distract ourselves or hide from our doubts. He knows the doubts we can't even properly express or articulate. He knows the doubts that cause such great fear in our hearts that all we can manage to do sometimes is distract ourselves because we can't think about it anymore. He knows our doubts and he cares about our doubts. That's the second thing. Jesus cares about our doubts. The fact that Jesus comes to Thomas in the middle of his doubt and unbelief and his defiant address, I will never believe demonstrates that Jesus cares about our doubts. Jesus didn't have to come and minister to Thomas. He didn't have to do it in this way. He didn't have to come and offer to meet Thomas's solutions or or his conditions. But Jesus showed up and went to Thomas in his doubt because he cared about Thomas. He loved Thomas. 
Thomas was his own. Jesus cares about Thomas's doubt. Jesus cares about your doubt. He cares about my doubt. The third thing we see is that Jesus confronts our doubts. When he came to Thomas, he spoke exactly to Thomas's doubt. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Jesus is saying, Thomas, all your conditions are here. All the things that you think will convince you, that will bring rest and peace to your soul, they're right here. But then Jesus says something so powerful and so convicting, it melts Thomas's heart of unbelief. Look at what he says at the end of verse 27. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And it's in that moment, Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Thomas's response was a response of belief. It was a five-word sentence that encapsulated an entire change of heart that was marked by unbelief, that was marked by, I will never believe unless Jesus does this. That had been transformed to a heart of belief. My Lord and my God. So what was it that changed Thomas's heart? It was the presence and the words of Jesus that powerfully transformed his heart. It wasn't the evidence. It wasn't his bartering with God, right? Sometimes we play those games like, God, if you just do this for me, then I'll trust you. Then I'll believe. Then I'll know you're on my side. It wasn't that Jesus came and addressed his exact doubts. It was the words and presence of Jesus. I think it's significant that John highlights or, or, or doesn't highlight if Thomas ever touched Jesus' wounds. The text doesn't tell us. There's no way to know. But I think God inspired John to write this story for the purpose to show us that what changes hearts is the grace of God. And what brings courage and belief is not evidence, is not human reason, is not human willpower. It's the spirit of God using the word of God to bring about belief. I love what Jeremy prayed earlier. Faith is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, which is the gift of God. We don't believe because we have greater faith better understanding, more willpower to control our thoughts, our emotions, or conjure up feelings. We believe when the Spirit of God illuminates the truth to us and brings about belief in us. 
Thomas believed because the presence and words of Jesus powerfully transformed his heart. Jesus confirms this in the text. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus isn't condemning Thomas's struggle here. Jesus has already lovingly rebuked him with the truth. Do not be disbelieving, but believe. Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. Thomas, did your belief come about because of something you did? Because of some sort of physical, tangible evidence or foolproof line of logic or reason or feeling? No. You believed because the grace of God worked in your heart through the Spirit illuminating God's truth. Thomas isn't believing because because he got his evidence or because he could muster up faith or feelings or he got all of his questions answered. Thomas responds in belief because God graciously worked in his heart. Jesus knew Thomas's doubts. Jesus cared about Thomas's doubts. He confronted Thomas's doubts. And then Jesus gave him faith for his doubts. Through his very presence and his word. This is why Jesus can and does say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This was John's entire purpose in writing this gospel. If you look down at the next two verses, 30 and 31, John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of these disciples. There are other things I could have written that Jesus said and did, but these are written. I chose these passages under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that you may believe. John's constantly confronting us with what we're going to do with Jesus. Are we going to believe? Jesus knew what was coming shortly after this conversation with Thomas. And if you remember Jesus's final words before going to the cross, his prayer and his instruction to the disciples on Uh, on the, the last supper evening was that he would be leaving soon to ascend to the Father and in his place he would send the Spirit to be a comforter and a helper and a teacher. And Jesus said that when he did this, it would actually be better for every believer going forward than his physical presence with us. Because when Jesus left, he would send the Spirit Not to just be with us, but to live in us. To dwell in us. Just as Jesus came to dwell among men, the incarnate God, the second member of the Trinity, now the spirit he was sending to dwell in men eternally. 
And through the Spirit, the disciples would see Jesus, not physically, but the Spirit's job is to illuminate the Word, which is Jesus, John tells us, so that we see him, not with our physical eyes, but in the truth. The same way Thomas's heart of unbelief was transformed into a heart of belief is the same way that every person experiences that transformation. It's the grace of God through the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth, bringing about faith. So the final thing we see in this text is that Jesus calls for and commends faith in the midst of our doubts. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, right? This is everybody who has read John's gospel because this gospel was written years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. John was likely the last living person to see Jesus with his physical eyes. And he's including this as one of Jesus' last words in the gospel to point to the promise of Jesus that those who came after Jesus, after he ascended to the Father, could still see Jesus with spiritual eyes. And when we pull ourselves out of this text, out of the room where Jesus is addressing Thomas, and we bring ourselves back to Simpsonville in 2023, what we see here is Jesus speaking to you and to me. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. What does Jesus mean? That word blessed, we often think of blessing as something that God does, he gives us, right? Some material prosperity or some... uh, uh, prosperity in other areas of life, or we feel blessed, it feels like an emotion. But when the scripture talks about blessing, it does include those feelings of thankfulness and happiness and joy, but it also means approval and acceptance. Jesus is saying, blessed are those, accepted and approved and privileged are those who haven't seen me, who haven't had the opportunity to see me because I'm ascending to the Father where I will reside until I come back, but I'm sending the Spirit and those who see me through the Spirit, they're approved by God. The authority that I've given to the disciples, the commissioning to go proclaim the good news, to forgive sins or withhold forgiveness, is the same authority that the church has now through the gospel and that we have to have confirmation that when we turn to God in faith because of the finished work of Christ, we stand approved. We stand accepted. Regardless of what struggles we face, regardless of what sins we commit, regardless of how unfaithful and fickle our hearts can be or how doubting we can be, 
approved because of God's grace. Here's the reality. We have everything Jesus would say to us in this book if he was here. And he's saying it to us right now. Jesus calls us to believe. He enables us to believe. So let me ask you this. Where are you this morning? Are you an unbeliever? Are you here hearing this for the first time? Or maybe you've heard this your whole life, but wherever you stand, you know that you haven't believed in Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words to you here this morning. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What are you to believe? You're to believe that Jesus is who he says he is in this book. That everything he has written through the human authors that he inspired and that he's preserved for us is his words to you and to me. And he is who he says he is, the son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Believing entails acknowledging your own sinfulness and your own inability to turn to God and to create belief in your heart or, or to do enough good things that God will approve you. Believing entails saying, I can't do that, but Jesus tells me he did it for me. And that's what I'm trusting in. It entails responding to this merciful and gracious gift of God in Christ with thankfulness, with repentance, and with belief. Jesus says to you, blessed are you who have not seen with your physical eyes, but have believed through the illuminating work of the Spirit. If you haven't believed, hear Jesus' words. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Are you a believer this morning struggling with doubt? I know I am. My doubts vary and they come every day in different shapes and different forms and in different intensities. I was sitting in the front row this morning thinking the, the answer to what I'm fearful of right now is believing. God, help me to believe. Where are your doubts? Are you doubting God's goodness? Are you doubting his promises, his faithfulness, his presence, his grace? Hear the words of Jesus to you. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus knows your doubts. He cares about your doubts. He confronts your doubts lovingly, but with truth. So take your doubts to Jesus. Hear what he has to say in his word and allow the spirit to illuminate truth 
and bring about trust and faith and then follow in obedience. I want to end this message this morning just simply reading a passage of scripture to you. I want you to hear Jesus' words. They're written through the Apostle Peter who was present in the room with Thomas when Jesus showed up and he lovingly worked graciously in in, in Thomas's heart. And Peter is now writing to a group of believers who have never seen Jesus either, but he's writing to encourage them. This is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept in heaven for you, who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials. You're hurt by things that bring doubt. So that the testedness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perish, though it perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then listen to what he says to him and listen to what Jesus says to you and to me. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. My friends, Jesus' words to you and to me are do not disbelieve, but believe. Our Father, we come to you this morning full of doubts and worries and fears. Lord, there's no way to know the vast amounts of worry and fear, the the specific doubts that are unique to each of us, the situations that are causing to us the wrestling that's going on within our hearts. But Lord, you know, and you care. And Lord, you speak to us and you call us to believe. And God, in our wrestling to believe, you not only come to us, but then you enable us to believe through your gracious work of the Spirit. And so God, as we wait, though we don't see you now with our physical eyes, God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to believe, Lord. And we will wait with joy for the day that one day we will see you when you return. What a glorious day that'll be. Lord, we 